Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. We're here at North York General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update, and for the first time at this conference, we've had none other than Dr. Mike Winters. Mike, welcome to EM Cases. Thanks so much. It's an absolute privilege to be here. Awesome. So, Mike, before we get into your best case ever, can you just tell us a little bit about your background professionally? Absolutely. So I am from Baltimore. I currently practice at the University of Maryland. I'm an associate professor there in both EM as well as IM. I did the EMIM training program at Maryland. I stayed on as faculty following that and I'm actually the program director for the EMIM program and in 2008 was able to put through and get approved the EMIM critical care program. So I also co-direct that and have graduated a number of, of residents who are now out practicing EM and critical care. And the last hat I wear is actually medical director of our emergency department. So I wear a few hats at the University of Maryland, but I have wonderful, amazing colleagues that I work with. I, I really couldn't, can't imagine a better place than University of Maryland. Wow. H- holy credentials, Batman. <laughs> I'm really glad that, that Amal brought you up here to Toronto for this conference. And uh, it's a great opportunity to hear your best case ever. So let's just cut to the chase. Let it rip. What's uh, your best case ever? All right. So best case ever, you know, as we started talking about doing a best case ever, I, lots of things ran through my mind. What Was it my son's case of anaphylaxis just a few years ago, which was extremely anxiety provoking? Was it some LVAD patients that have crashed, pulmonary hypertension, some patients we've recently put on ECMO? We've had a lot of sick patients come into our emergency department. And one of the cases that I kept coming back to is actually not a case of a patient I took care of. In fact, this occurred for me personally at the age of 14. And let me explain what that is. I was born in Baltimore at a little community hospital just down the road from where I currently practice at the University of Maryland. And for the first few years of my life, grew up in the city. And my parents worked quite a bit. And as some of you know, my dad actually was a medic or a paramedic on the medevac helicopters that would bring patients into shock trauma. So that was an early connection for me to the University of Maryland. Anyway, during my first few years, my brother, my sister, and I, we really were raised, in essence, by my grandparents. My parents certainly were around, but they were so busy that my, my grandparents took us to a lot of things. So I got really close to my grandfather. He would take us to a lot of activities, ball games. And I remember one Thursday afternoon, June 25th, 1987, I was, had spent the night before at my grandparents' house, and we were sitting on the couch, and I heard this really weird noise. And I, I turned over, and I saw my grandfather actually clutch his chest, and then he fell onto the floor in, in, in essence, full cardiac arrest. And I'm giving you my best case ever because it's the case that affected me the most, and it's actually the patient's perspective of things. And I vividly remember the Baltimore City crew arriving uh, to his apartment, running in, my grandmother screaming in tears, crying, trying to revive him even before the medics arrived, them getting there, starting some CPR, and then trying a few times to intubate him to really no avail. And and eventually they, they packaged him up in the rig and put him in the back and actually sped off to that same hospital where I was born 14 years earlier. 
And the reason I wanted to talk about this case is because it, it's something that certainly has shaped me moving forward. Was it exactly the turning point that headed me in a career of medicine or taking care of critically ill patients or resuscitating these patients? You know, I'm not sure. I'm sure that played a significant role. But I remember getting to the hospital and my grandmother and I frantically speeding behind the ambulance. I can see her see her arms just trembling, holding onto the steering wheel. And when we got there, we were ushered in to a waiting room, presumably a family waiting room next to their recess bay. And one of the first things that struck me, quite honestly, was just the amount of people running in and out and in and out of that resuscitation bay and just what really seemed like a chaotic type of picture, quite honestly. Um, There may have been organization. It didn't seem like it, but there was a lot of yelling, calling for medications. And I didn't know that at the time as a 14-year-old looking into that room. But now as a clinician on the other end of things, I I certainly knew what they were attempting to do. And so, you know, one of the things that I've talked about more recently that I've become comfortable talking about this case is just really the impact of team coordination on cardiac arrest resuscitation. There's lots of articles out there, probably 60 or 70, on the effect of team coordination and how it really gets back to you and I, in in essence, our ability to be an effective team leader that, that may actually make the difference between whether patients survive or they don't survive from cardiac arrest resuscitation, and how as we as team leaders really need to take charge, take control, assign tasks to our, our various colleagues that are assisting with the resuscitation, and really, above all else, be decisive in terms of our decision-making in cardiac arrest resuscitation. And as the minutes kind of ticked by as my grandmother and I sat in that room, minutes, seconds, probably even, it felt like hours, I'll be honest, I stood up and and went to the door and and happened to actually peer into the room where they were attempting to resuscitate him, and I could see someone performing CPR. And that certainly is an image in my head that I won't ever forget. And they continued CPR, and I had to turn away. I sat back down with my grandmother. At this point, she just had her head in her hands. We were hoping to have good news. And eventually the emergency provider did come into the room and said that they had gotten him back. They had actually gotten a pulse back and that he was very unstable. They weren't sure if he was going to make it, but it was at a time where they felt perhaps we could come to the bedside. So we did. My grandmother and I, we we cautiously and apprehensively went to the bedside and he was intubated, lots of tubes, lines, a little bit of blood on the floor. And wasn't soon after that that they asked us to please have a seat back in in the waiting room. And I think they'd started a little bit of post-arrest care, certainly not hypothermia and the things that we're used to nowadays in terms of running cardiac arrest resuscitation. And it was probably about 10 minutes or so after that, once again, yet another flurry of activity went on in that room. And it was that point that I learned he had lost his pulse again. Presumably the epinephrine had worn off and they were back doing CPR. And about 15 minutes after that, uh, the physician came back in and said that he had died, that they weren't able to to get him back from a resuscitation standpoint. And certainly that that was a life-changing moment for me, you know, in terms of his cardiac arrest. And many, many years later, as a, a junior faculty, one of my first 
within my first year of being an attending, uh, you know, I, I walked into the University of Maryland. I'm, I'm a brand new attending, and I, I'm thinking, my God, it, it doesn't feel right that I'm in charge. I shouldn't be in charge. I'm not old enough. You know, who put me on the schedule? A lot of apprehension. And in that first month, I remember having a cardiac arrest of a a 60-year-old gentleman who was at work and and simply just his head went down, slammed on the desk. His coworkers checked on him, and he was in cardiac arrest. And running his resuscitation, whether it was the body habitus, something just seemed really familiar or, or seemed unnervingly familiar, analogous to my grandfather's situation. You know, he, even with the exception of his face, kind of body habitus resembled him. And, and we ran that resuscitation. And I think we, we attempted everything, but we were unsuccessful in saving that gentleman that day who came into our ED. And the family arrived, and, and I brought his daughter to the bedside, and I explained that, you know, what we did, the cardiac arrest, and that you know, we most likely thought it was his heart and, and certainly she was very, very emotional. And, you know, that, that case kind of ended. And I didn't think about it until I would say three or four weeks later that I got this letter in my ED mailbox. And, and I opened it up and it started off something to the effect of, you don't know who I am or you may not know who I am, um, but I will always remember you. And several weeks ago, you took care of my grand or my father when he came in in cardiac arrest and you weren't able to save him. And while this has been an emotional time for me, I want to thank you for the care that you delivered him. And your face is something that I will always take with me forever. And I'm very appreciative of the time you took with me after that in terms of explaining what went on, allowing me to see my father you know, one last time Thank you for that. And, and it really drove home the fact that, you know, you've heard Mel and everybody on podcasts, you know, Mel's EM rap is, you know, what you do matters. And even beyond the medical care, take a second to, to look around and, and, and you never know what family is watching and how the things that we do, we leave our shift and we go home and, and there's so many other things going on. But for those individuals, especially those that pass away or die in our emergency department, it's been a life-changing moment for that family. And you never know who you're going to affect. And, and that day, Thursday, June 25th, 1987, certainly I remember that emergency provider uh, very well. And, and that person will, I don't even know if they're still in practice, quite honestly. Uh, but yes, the things we do do matter. Wow, that, that's an amazing story. So Mike, when you teach your residents about how to communicate in these really difficult situations, you know, you've, like you say, you've had the perspectives as a kid in these horrible situations. Um, and then, you know, again, as, as the head of your intensive care emergency department, how do you actually teach other people how best to communicate based on these very intense experiences that you've had? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think it depends on the stage of the learner. You know, I, I've gotten, and it took me a few years, I'll be honest, I was not comfortable as a new attending, new faculty, or even a senior resident having family present. There was certainly a level of anxiety. Now that I'm many, many years out, I feel comfortable, you know, in my clinical practice. You know, there, there's always a degree of apprehension, but I feel comfortable having family present in the room. And so as we move towards the end, there are certain things that I will say that 
I'm giving verbal clues, I think, to the team, but also more importantly to the family that it's unlikely we're going to get this person back. And so I'll begin by doing that with the family in the room. Can you give us some examples of what you might say? Well, you know, I, I think that we're going to continue to do X, Y, or Z. We're not having a response. Is there a pulse? No. When we do, a, if we do a pulse check, if you know, say in the absence of entitled CO two, having them see the ultrasound screen with no cardiac motion and talking out loud that you know, not we're not optimistic. We're going to continue to try medications or not, whether you believe in them, but just in essence, preparing the family that it's going to be very, in very short time, we're going to call, you know, pronounce the time of death. Um, And most have actually responded pretty well to that. Um, Certainly it's a grief period, but we've never, I've never experienced pushback from that because they can see for themselves, there's no motion, heart is stopped, they're not breathing, uh, using layman's terms for sure, uh, to, to prepare them. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just say the family isn't there. Then, depending on whether it's a senior resident or, or first-year resident, if it's a first-year resident then or an intern and it's a very anxiety-provoking situation, usually the first one or two I will model for them the things to say. And, and like everybody else who has talked about this topic, you know, using the word, they've died. Instead of pass away or they've passed or they're gone, using that word is, is critical in terms of, of ensuring that family understands that. Um, and then just actually giving them time to react rather than saying it and then immediately followed by, do you have any questions? Routinely, once I use that term or that word died, I won't say anything for one or two minutes. It may feel like a long time, but just to allow them to process that and have them speak next, quite honestly. Yeah, those are just a few few pearls. If it's more of the senior level um, resident who's done it maybe upstairs. Now at Maryland, we have our categorical program, but we also have our EMIM, our EMIM critical care, our EMPs. So there's, there's a lot of advanced learners, four, five, and even six years, that I'll usually accompany them um, but I feel confident in just seeing how that interaction goes and then maybe tweaking that from a few teaching pearl standpoints. So it, it all depends on the, the resident per se. Okay, and you, you had touched as well on um, how teamwork is so important and being the leader of that team and having the right skills. Um, there's lots of stuff out there on teamwork and how to make it work. I know that many of the hospitals that I've worked at, there's one physician mm-hmm. For each resuscitation, some places have an unwritten rule that there has to be two physicians at each mm-hmm. resuscitation. What's your take on how many physicians should be at each resuscitation in an ED? I don't have a, a particular take on the number. You know, I, I, as I've alluded to, I'm, I'm at the University of Maryland, so I'm at a center where I have every resource available, and that's dissimilar to probably the majority of the listeners currently where they may be single practice. You know, in terms of whoever you decide, there, there are places in the U.S. that have the nurse actually be the team leader, which frees the physician up to perform critical interventions such as securing the airway at a, some point in time, performing the ultrasound, getting more permanent IV access if you're not using an IO. I think it, whoever the team leader is, I think what it 
critical is having a process ahead of time. And this is something we've embarked upon recently in our shop is having a resuscitation team that goes through and has more of a systematic process. These are the key team members that we need around the bed, someone to manage the airway. And that could simply just be adequate bag valve mask respirations, a chest compress, a tech or anyone to do compressions, uh, someone to establish IO or IV access, the team leader, and then, you know, and if you're going to administer medications, those are the critical components. We have gone to labeling those or providing specific visual cues for those providers who are doing cardiac arrest resuscitation. So when something comes in, we know who the team leader for that arrest is going to be. They have a certain color sticker, and that corresponds to that the color that we've footprinted the floor on. So we know kind of position-wise where everybody's going to stand. If you're the compressor for that day, if you're or for that arrest, or if you're the airway person, you know your role. It's well-defined. You have a visual color where you're at, where you're going to stand. It makes a more systematic approach to, to running resuscitations. Um, so I don't know that there's an absolute minimal number that you need to have, but whatever your resources are, I think those are the key roles. Mm-hmm. One specific question when it comes to cardiac arrest and using ultrasound, I mean, this is kind of what I was alluding to when asking whether you should have two physicians, mm-hmm. is what I've seen sometimes is one physician trying to do ultrasound and then they're jumping to the airway mm-hmm. and then they're going back and forth and uh, there's someone on the pulse, but of course we know that, that manual pulse checks aren't the... is very unreliable. Exactly, is very, aren't the most reliable things in the world. Um, and that you might want to have someone have an ultrasound, you know, on the on the groin, looking to see if there's actually a pulse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the ultrasound, as we've learned recently, can be quite valuable mm-hmm. in in resuscitating the cardiac arrest patient. In this setup that you have, which sounds great, with everyone knowing exactly where to stand, do you have someone doing ultrasound, or is that sort of an added thing? Mm-hmm. How do you coordinate that? So. I definitely want, this is a new process for us over the past few months. So I definitely don't want to provide everybody with the impression that we get it right 100% of the time because it's still, you know, an evolution. We're doing simulations. We have, we video all of our recesses. So we then go back and do performance improvement. So by no means are we perfect. With respect to ultrasound, it's in the room. And we certainly, when somebody comes in, what we'll try to do is often we're not establishing the airway right away. I think adequate bag valve mass ventilations at about eight, maybe 10 breaths per minute is fine in the first few minutes while you're trying to assess the scenario. We'll attempt to get the patient. Now, I will say that most come in intubated from the field, and in those patients, we'll go ahead and connect to end tidal CO2. And we'll really try to limit, if not eliminate, pulse checks and follow our end tidal CO2. The ultrasound is used within the first one or two minutes to see if there's a rapidly reversible cause but we'll try to not go back so frequently with the ultrasound that we're decreasing our chest compression fraction ratio. So the latest guidelines would say you wanna make sure that you're providing high quality compressions for at least 60% of the time of your recess. There's some other consensus documents that would say you probably should get it closer to 80%. So in terms of minimizing interruptions, I'm using ultrasound upfront. Do I have a big RV that I'm giving lytics potentially? Do I have a tamponade that I'm doing a pericardiocentesis? And then as the resuscitation unfolds, 
I'm going to use it again, but I'm not going to do it every two minutes with a with every single pulse check, uh, because I think there we've seen in looking at our own videos that it's gone beyond well beyond the 10 seconds and really is starting to adversely affect chest compression fraction ratio. Great, that sounds fantastic. I mean, that's one of the things that I've always had a trouble with is uh, someone's in there with the ultrasound, and then the last thing in the world you want to do is poor chest compressions. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, um, Haney Malament, one of my colleagues, definitely give a shout out to Haney. What he'll do is he'll put the ultrasound probe on initially and record a 10 second clip and then take the probe off. Someone resumes compressions. While they're doing compressions, while there's, uh, nurses are doing tasks, you have a few seconds or minutes to actually then just play the video back. So that way you're not trying to get, keep the probe on the chest. Well, let me see. Well, let me look at this image. Let me move the or fan the array here and see if I get a better image. You've done a quick video clip that you can then just loop to see and take a little bit better look at in terms of, of cardiac activity. There's a pearl. So yeah, no, I think it's a great pearl that Haney's put out there and I, I think it's something definitely to consider using in, in resuscitations. Dr. Winters, we got to have you back on EM cases for a full episode one of these days because uh, we've already spent a good chunk of this time talking about all kinds of great, great stuff, some great pearls, and uh, I'm sure you have a lot more to contribute. So I hope to have you back, and thanks for coming out to Emergency Medicine Update. Oh, I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to, to do a, this segment here. It's really been great, and the EMU Update has been a fabulous con, conference. So my thanks to the conference organizers, and it, I've really had a great time. I will say that actually this is my first trip to Canada. As long as I've lived in Maryland, uh, I'm now about 30-some hours into uh, being in Canada for the first time. So my thanks to all of you for having me up. Totally awesome, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a couple of upcoming EM Cases episodes, we'll have highlights from North York General's EMU conference, as well as highlights from the University of Toronto's Whistler conference. And just before you go, a year's worth of blood, sweat, and tears of nine EM Cases team folks has come to an end with the exciting release of EM Cases Digest Volume 2 Pediatric Emergencies, which I'm proud to say is now available for free download exclusively on the EM Cases website under ebooks. So it's a nice way to brush up on some peds with some cool cases, Q&As, rapid review questions, and more interactive goodies. Enjoy. In my compass north, I got winter 